Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization and a small portion of every purchase will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Some years ago, a Harvard graduate was chatting it up with a renowned Yale philosophy professor at a black tie cocktail party. The conversation turned toward, what do you do? And the Harvard grad said, you're going to laugh at me. And the philosopher said, well, you know, give me a try, you know, give a shot here. He says, well, I make urinals. Wow. All right. So you took your Harvard degree and you went and made urinals with it. Wow, like that's, that is something else. I mean, who really wants to make urinals? Can you imagine thinking about your work every day? Like what in the world is going on? You're like, oh, I wonder how my last project's doing. I can pretty much tell you how it's, how it's going. And yet the philosophy professor said to him, listen, men use urinals every day. Like what isn't What's, why, why be embarrassed about that? This is good work. This is important stuff. And the, you, the Harvard grad went on to tell him that he isn't just making urinals, which already was good. He was working on flush-free urinals. Each one can save tens of thousands of gallons of water a year hundreds of thousands of gallons of a precious resource saved because of this guy's work. This isn't just good work. This is great work. But it would be very easy to miss that conclusion. And I think many of us fall into a similar category where we look at our work and it isn't always easy to see how our work is a good or even a great work to do. Today, we want to help each one here come to grips with our work. We want to help us get unstuck when it comes to the thing that actually takes up the most amount of most of our lives, our work. But before we do that, fun fact about turtles, because we haven't talked about turtles in a little while. Did you know that there are some species of turtles that help each other out? I'm kidding. This is like super cool. So, you know, I had this idea that like when a turtle was stuck on its back, that was sort of it. You know, like he was that he was like finished because he was stuck on his back. And so, you know, this is why the postcard might be a little bit troubling to some, um, which, you know, I understand. But look at that. He's not alone. He's not like a, a unique turtle. Others will do similar things, which is pretty darn cool when you think about it. Turtles helping 
turtles get unstuck. And that's, you know, right? Give it up for the turtle. I mean, you see that? Listen, that's what this series is about. We're offering ideas from God's word on how we can get unstuck. We have a community of faith here, a spiritual family that will support each other to help in all sorts of circumstances when we are stuck on our backs and sort of flailing about. That's really what this is all about. And when we started the series, we started with this topic of being stuck in a social quagmire. And then we did two weeks on marriage, being stuck in your marriage. Uh, and then last week, Trevor did this incredible message on being stuck in shame, which I've been thinking about uh, just all week and has been very encouraging and challenging to me. And today we talk about work, which is also important to remember that these principles will also apply to folks who are stay-at-home parents for all or for a majority of their work lives. And there are plenty of ways that we get stuck in work. We can get stuck by the money. Let's say you took a job for the money, but now you're not so sure that you really want to be in that job or maybe not even in that profession. Maybe that whole career track you're now having second thoughts about. But your lifestyle has been built up in such a way that you actually are stuck because you need the money. It's one of the ways. We also get stuck because we end up frantically working more and more so that we can spend more and more so that we have to, wait for it, work more and more, which of course means we spend more and more in this vicious cycle we get stuck in. Maybe your situation's a little different. Maybe you simply don't feel like you have enough money to attain what you had hoped to attain. Maybe it's the comfort or maybe it's the security or the leisure. Maybe it's the respect. Or maybe you just simply don't have enough for the basic expenses of life. You're stuck by the money. You can also get stuck in the busy. In the busy. Odd way to phrase it, but you know what it's like. Your job is so demanding that it now competes with the rest of your life. You want a slower pace at work. So you can what? What jumps to mind when I say that? For many, it's going to be family. Or maybe you've got some new ministry aspirations. You want to get more involved in kind of the kingdom work that God has for you. But I can't because I'm just stuck in the busyness of my job. Maybe you just want a slower pace of life so that you can actually enjoy the fruit of your labor. Another possibility. You can also get stuck by the ethics of the thing, stuck in the ethics of it. You can work in such a way that you used to, but no longer quite feels right. And who knows what change happened. Maybe it no longer aligns with your values. It might be that your values are changing. Maybe you've recently come to faith, or you've been sort of renewed in your spiritual commitments. And you're looking at your field and you're going, what am I doing here? Like, is there any good that actually comes out of the work that I do? Anything good for the broader society? In fact, I'm not even sure that not only does it seem meaningless, but actually what I'm doing is, is harmful. It actually is, is contributing to the overall bad of the world. 
And you don't want to contribute your time and energy and your creativity to something that is useless or worse. You can also simply be stuck in the failures. Stuck in the failures. You know what happens, right? You seem that you always want to like, you know, sort of, you want to get ahead. You try to get ahead. You want to make a name for yourself. You want to find the right career. You want to provide a living for yourself and for your family. But you can't. No matter how hard you try, it just isn't working. In a deep, despairing sense of failure, can kick in. Some of our identity comes from the work that we do. So for those who struggle in this, this could really be a bit of, a, of an existential crisis they face. Maybe you're stuck because you simply can't do what you used to do. And this is so frustrating. You're slowing down. You can't keep up. You aren't as creative. You make more mistakes than you ever have before. And you're feeling like not only are you stuck, but you're actually sinking deeper and deeper into irrelevancy because you're no longer as productive as you once were. You can also be stuck without meaning. Lots of people are stuck in jobs that don't give them the meaning and the significance that they want. You know, folks are simply no longer content to work in order to live. We don't want to work for the weekends. They want to live through their work. We can't figure out how to do that. And so can a 2,000-year-old letter written by a Jewish Christian rabbi who was actually writing in a completely different context give us insight into our own struggles with our own jobs? And I, I think remarkably it does. So if you'd open in a Bible to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians who vary in their professions as much as we do. This was written to the city of Colossae. It was a small city, not particularly famous for anything, sort of just an average small city, but filled with an eclectic group of workers. There were craftsmen and construction workers and artisans and architects and healthcare workers and highbrow socialites and military and managers and lawyers and law enforcement. There were farmers and furniture makers and there were restauranteurs and reality TV show hosts. And actually, I'm kidding about that one. Did you get it? Because I want to make sure you're still with me here. There were not any reality TV, but there were entertainers. And there were also exporters, there were priests and paupers, and, and there were teachers, and there were tax collectors. And Paul, he's encouraging this eclectic group of workers throughout the whole of this letter to focus on Christ. And when they do that, it will help them to move into their work in such a way as to transform how and why they do their work. So look at verse 22 with me. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. 
and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, before we dive in, I want to do a little kind of a excursus here on slavery, since it's a dominant theme in our text. And you might be thinking this, if you come from a more skeptical or even cynical background, you say, wait, the Bible here is condoning slavery. I knew it was a backward book. But the, the reality is the Bible never condones slavery. Even in this text, there isn't even a hint that slavery here is encouraged. The Bible will interact with and it will govern these situations because it always will speak into and challenge the dominant culture. So, you know, let's say there was a, a prisoner who was unjustly incarcerated. And I came along and I encouraged you guys to support them and help them in prison and go over there and, and make certain, you know, that they're not being mistreated or anything like that. In doing that, I'm not condoning the injustice. I'm simply coming alongside those in society who need it most. And the early Christians, you know, people ask, you know, what is, how come the early Christians, they didn't, they didn't overthrow slavery at the first opportunity? I mean, they, the, the early Christians would never even have conceived of themselves in this way. You know, that's something we're reading from our day and age into their day and age. They would not have seen themselves in this sort of like social action kind of a way, in large part because they were an extremely small minority in the midst of this massive and violent authoritarian regime. The idea of starting a slave revolt would never even have crossed their minds. And even if they had, even if they had gone onto the rooftops and shouted it from at the top of their lungs, it would have fallen on deaf ears. The society wasn't able or ready to hear it. In part because the slavery that we're talking about here was different from the particularly brutal and race-based version that blights American history. I'm not saying it was a good thing, even back then. But it did serve different purposes, and it sometimes ended with slaves becoming an important part of the family, helping raise them, the kids, and run the household businesses as trusted members of the home. Now, it's true, you could have been forced into slavery at that time, many were, but it was often the result of war. And it was considered by many a better option than what they would normally want to do to prisoners of war, which would have been a brutal death. Some people would even sell themselves into slavery, which seems impossible for us to believe. But they would do it because it offered a better life circumstance for them than starving or being homeless with their freedom intact. And in that case, 
freedom, as we think of it, for many slaves would not have been seen as an obvious benefit. Now, that being said, a whole lot of people point, scholars and historians point to passages like this and the book of Philemon and some others to show that ultimately the writers of the New Testament supported the end of slavery and in fact sowed the seed of the end of slavery in these texts. For instance, the slaves here were given a very high status. Paul is assuming that the slaves would be in the midst of the community, in the midst of the church, listening to this letter. He, they, told, they were supposed to gather up and listen to it, and he is speaking to them directly because they are in the midst of their brothers and sisters in Christ. These were categorical shifts in the way the ancient culture viewed slaves. They didn't see them as brothers and sisters in Christ who could, who could have the kind of status and the respect and even be considered responsible people who could hear and apply these kinds of things. And the masters here are given instructions regarding justice and fairness toward the slaves, which in that day and age was rare in the ancient literature. And really contrary to the teaching of men, even like Aristotle. So we look at this and we say, yeah, but does the teaching about slaves and masters, does it have anything to say to us today? And some of you are in jobs where you're like, yes, it does. It applies directly to me. And you would not be alone. Many people today feel trapped in their work. And they often think that their boss or their industry is stifling or oppressive. They say one in five employees flat out say they hate their bosses. That's not as how many are unhappy. One in five hate their bosses. And about half say that their employer doesn't value them. When asked to give us a list of things uh, that they dislike about their employers, they say, well, they don't communicate well, they set their own rules, they patronize me, never says thank you, makes me feel stupid, doesn't actually do any work, takes credit for other people's work, makes me feel guilty for taking time off, intrudes into my vacation and personal time with calls, emails, and texts. It sounds pretty oppressive. Lots of people view their job this way. And many workers throughout history have found the principles in these letters to be encouraging to us, which means it simply works. So what's the first thing he tells us in verse 22? Work with integrity. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor. How many times have we seen or even been lazy or sloppy in our work? How many folks will do the absolute bare minimum just to get by? In fact, many unethical business practices exist because people see their work simply as a means to an end rather than an end in itself. And if you are only working to impress your boss or to get ahead if you view your work in such a superficial way, then everything will become a means to an end. 
You're just trying to get something out of it. I'm just trying to pay my bills or, or propel my career or build my reputation or, or give me some sort of a platform for more power in this world. But the scriptures paint this totally different picture. It paints the picture that work is a gift. And if we are only working to get ahead in this world, then we are working for a temporary thing that will soon disappear. No wonder we feel the futility and the meaninglessness of it. You ever notice that, you know, you're working toward some goal? You know, you want to get a promotion or, you know, be recognized. And once you get it, you're no longer satisfied with it. See how quickly it happens, too? It's startling. But I thought this was what I was working toward. No, you're not. Or what happens when you aren't recognized? You've done hard work, but nobody seems to really care. Then what takes place? We get frustrated. We get depressed even. Disillusioned. See, the work you do and how you do your work is a reflection of your faith in Christ. And we have to work with integrity. By the way, this also means, working with integrity means that there are, in fact, some careers that are simply not compatible with your Christian faith. That's a, a simple reality of the world we now live in. That's part of working with integrity. But it does mean more than that. It means we got to work hard. It means we have to be conscientious. It means we have to do our best no matter what the circumstances are. So if your boss is a jerk, work for her as if she wasn't. If your boss is a nincompoop, which is a great word, by the way. I feel like we should bring it back because I heard it this week. I'm like, I am totally using it. We should all work it in. Can you guys say that with me? Nincompoop. My boss is a, go ahead, say that. Chris and Trevor, don't, no, no, Trevor, no, don't. Chris, I see Chris smirking. All right, no. If your boss is a nincompoop, and takes all your credit, work for him as if he isn't. See, Christians, you were called to a higher and a more sacrificial work ethic. You're not working for merely temporal gains and fickle bosses. That's why we get to work with a sincerity of heart. Look at the verse 22, the second half. He says, but with sincerity of heart, in reverence for the Lord. He keeps putting the Lord at the center of this. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Does that describe your nine to five? I mean, if you push paper, do you push it with joy? <laughs> work with all your heart. If you collect garbage, do you know that you're benefiting people and society? If you're watching kids and you're taking care of the elderly or, or you're keeping watch over the retirement savings for aging people, or maybe you're bagging groceries for frantic people, or you're fixing cars for stranded people, or you're providing tech support for confused people, do it with all your heart. People should be able to see your work, how you do your work, and know that you're different. 
know that you're working for something more. That you're doing a better thing in society. And this will help restore the joy and the creativity and the challenge to our work. Why? Because you are not really working for them. You're really working for God. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Listen, work is a good thing. God created us to work. Leisure isn't the goal of life. Work ought to be our constant friend. Tim Keller wrote an amazing book about this topic, and he said, And so our work can be a calling, only if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means to self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes a person and undermines society itself. You know, the work might seem trivial, but the worker is never trivial. And the reward is never trivial. See, every act of work for a follower of Christ can be an act of worship. And God gives our work meaning. And we need meaningful work, or better, we need to find meaning in our work. Because not everyone is going to be able to work their dream job. Society wouldn't function if people didn't do the work that doesn't get all of the glory and all of the accolades. You know, someone needs to build urinals and others need to install them and yet others to clean them. This is important and it is good. You know, not everyone is gifted to run that hot new startup or manage an internet company from the local coffee shop. And I don't think the world would be a better place if we didn't have people who are fixing boilers and washing dishes and cutting lawns and programming computers. No matter how normal or unchallenging or even boring these things might often seem to us at first and on the surface, God comes along and he breathes value into every single worker and every Christ-honoring profession by letting us know that we work for something far greater than ourselves and our own self-interest. See, God gives us value that goes beyond the work. And to sweeten the pot, God lets us know that our paycheck actually comes from him. Look at verse 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I just love this idea. This single thought could transform your entire work experience. If we could just let this sink down deep in our souls. You see, we sometimes view our jobs as sort of entry points to bigger and better. Right? And so once we get there, then all will be well. Then we will be happy. Then we will be satisfied. But you are substituting a temporal thing for the eternal thing. 
the only thing that can actually bring us that hope, that joy, that pleasure, that confidence, that value is Christ. These aren't entry points to bigger or better work, to more meaning or more fulfillment or more money or more prestige. God looks at the whole of this situation. He's saying, listen, every single job in this life is entry level. Everything you do, no matter how, how, how far up the chain you get, no matter if you get the corner office or not, everything is entry level. Because he has something way more amazing waiting for us. Something waiting for you. And we get to work hard now because God is actually storing up for us an incredible inheritance in the life to come. Some of you know the, this quote from uh, Alice in Wonderland. Alice, she says, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? And the cat, the Cheshire cat says, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to get to. And Alice says, well, I, I, I don't much care where. And the cat says, well, then it doesn't much matter which way you go. <laughs> Listen, you want to know where you're going. You want to understand your next step. We need to take what God is telling us here. Take it to heart. Listen, you can find meaning and value and accolades from your heavenly Father and the promise of an inheritance in heaven no matter what you do for work. You know what? If you need to change the work you do, then change it. But more importantly, change the why and the how you work. And let the God who sees everything you do, every little bit of effort, every little bit of concern, every little bit of creativity that you pour out into this great world of his, let him see it and let him smile upon it and join him in his joy. As he promises that not a single bit of it escapes his notice, escapes his recognition, escapes his reward. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a time of communion. And uh, as they're doing that, I'm just going to ask that uh, you guys would uh, just bow your heads as I pray for us. Lord, what we're hoping to do here is to let your presence, your wisdom that comes from, that we learn in the scriptures, Lord, we're asking that you, Father, would, would give to us a sense of who we are in you in the midst of our work, Lord. May we not see it simply as the stuff we do to pay the bills or the stuff we have to do to get to the weekend to do the stuff we really want, but Lord, can we just see, Father, your your power working in us and through us. And may we do our work in such a way that it honors you. May people be able to, to observe us and wonder why it is we think and we do and we work the way we do. And we get to tell them it's because we work for a heavenly father who desperately loves us. Lord, I'm just praying that you would breathe this sort of meaning and purpose and value into each and every person here. We're asking it in Christ's name. Amen.